Hello, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's staying safe, staying healthy. I know that's kind of been a common thing I've been saying in every podcast episode, I think, for like the last month. But it is important. It is what's been going on. So I hope all of you are doing what you need to do, staying indoors, social distancing, only going out when you have to go out. And enjoying yourself and enjoying the podcast or whatever else is uh, keeping you busy these days. We just finished the Iron Maiden poll on Twitter, on my Twitter page, at The Hook Rocks, and it caused a few spirited debates, and I'm glad everybody enjoyed it. It's always hard to rank songs when you have such a immense and deep catalog like Iron Maiden does. Even their new stuff. And I know the new songs didn't do as well as I would have liked to have seen them do, but their new material, I mean, everything from Brave New World on after Bruce Dickinson came back into the band has been great, in my opinion. And I I stand by my thought that the new stuff is just as good as the classic stuff that you guys grew up with and, and love to this day. The finals were Run to the Hills versus Number of the Beast. Number of the Beast did win. I was a little surprised Hallowed Be Thy Name did not end up in the final, but you guys voted. But during the process, I was able to connect with my next guest, and I'm really happy to do so because, as I just informed him before we got on, his podcast was one of the reasons why I started this. Not like why I started it, but started to kind of formulate how I wanted to plan the podcast and the show because I would listen to their podcast frequently. And now I've got him on as a guest. And we have from New Finland, we have Nesbit, host of Talking Maiden. How you doing, man? What's going on? I'm doing good. I'm actually the co-host of Talking Maiden That's with tr- uh, yes. my co-host, Josh. Yeah, I'm doing great. I Things appreciate- are pretty good, considering. Yeah. How are you guys doing up where you're at? Um, You know what? It's not too bad out here. We're East Coast Canada. Uh, we're very, we're as far east as you can get, actually, before you hit Europe. So, uh, you know, the we're an island. Um, the, the entire province is actually includes more than just the island. So the entire pro- like the area of the whole pro- province, is it's close to the size I think of maybe California, and we have like half a million people, so the social distancing is not really a issue. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I know a lot of the rural areas here in the states have had lower amounts of cases or hasn't been really infected, but you know, as people come in and out of those areas, you run the risk of spreading the virus so it's going to be interesting over here in the next couple of months to see where things go to see what the new normal is you know, everyone's talking about going out and having a good time and i don't know if that's going to happen i don't see that happening so yeah i mean things are pretty good now i think we had like one new case in the last 10 days or something but i mean you know that could change very quickly so yeah <laughs> fingers yeah. crossed um it's funny you're talking about uh you're listening to our to our po- podcast um, I listened to your podcast and you just hit recently a hundred episodes. Um, that Ian Thornley episode was kind of bittersweet for me. I was supposed to see big wreck in July and, uh, I'm pretty sure there's no way that's happening now. 
Yeah, it's it's really discouraging when you think of the shows that we're all missing right now, and you think of all the bands that had momentum or had a new album coming out, like Big Wreck, because I love their last album, But For The Sun, that was released in 2019. Love Ian Thornley, love everything about Big Wreck, and I was lucky to see them this past November in Chicago. But yeah, it is um, it is bittersweet when you think about stuff like that. I mean, I had tickets to see Dockin' and Lynch Mob. I had tickets to see this new band, Wild Street, that was coming through. They're from New York. I had plans to go to a lot of shows over the summer. And I don't know, even if we open up the state at the end of May, I don't know if I'm that confident about being in a large group of people at this point. So I don't yeah, know. It's a weird thing to think about. I'm so used to like staying away from people. Now the thought of being in a big crowd is kind of strange. Yeah, it is. It is. And you know, there's a lot of general admission shows that I go to where people are really on top of each other and, do I want to be in that environment? So, and even like out here on the East Coast, we don't get a lot of bands coming through here. But there's a lot of like local bands that I'd go downtown and see. And even then, like you're in a small club and you're still, you know, on top of people. Basically, you're right next to people. It's, I don't know. It's gonna be strange. There's a couple bands that are from Canada that are really really good. This this band called Crownlands. Okay, I haven't heard of them. Yeah, they're really good. I, I think they're from Canada. There's a band from Vancouver called Lachinga that I'm a huge fan of. Um, okay, I have heard of them, yeah. Yeah, I love those guys and a couple others that kind of just elude me right now, uh, the names. But, yeah, you guys got a really good, vibrant music scene up there with some really, really good bands. Yeah, yeah, I could rattle off, like, a whole bunch more, but <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get bogged down in that. But, yeah, it gets kind of depressing now that, you know, the live shows are kind of on a hold. It is. It is. But uh, hopefully it's over sooner rather than later and we can start yeah. enjoying that stuff again. So, But anyway, as I was uh, saying, we always start the show every time we have a new guest the same way with the same question. It is the essence of the podcast. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock band has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance what hooked you nesbitt um okay i think i have a pretty good story about this so this isn't what kind of got me into rock music because i was already kind of a music fan but i remember the very first time i saw the sweet child of mine video uh there's two versions of the color one and a black and white one the one they played on much music which is like the canadian mtv is the color one and i remember the first time i saw that video uh, the song goes through, Axel has that really long note at the end, and Slash hits the last few notes of that song, and he, like, hits the first four, and then when he goes to hit the last note, instead of, like, strumming it, he, like, punches, like, the his Les Paul, like, behind the bridge, and I just thought that was the coolest, and that split second, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need to get a guitar, and that day, I started saving up, I bought a guitar, and the first song I learned to play was Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> that's awesome where'd it go from there um basically playing guitar in my room along with cds <laughs> i know that's... it was never much of a guitar player but that kind of spurred me to get a little bit more involved that's another depressing thing is i had a big trip planned to see uh me and a bunch of guys were supposed to see guns and roses this summer in toronto so that's also probably not gonna happen <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they were coming to Wrigley Field here in Chicago. I think, you know, yeah. I, 
they haven't announced anything yet, but I can't yeah, foresee that, it's that a, happening. Pretty much a given. Yeah. So but yeah, then Appetite for Destruction, I think, is still my favorite album because of that. And they're like a bucket list band I've always wanted to see. You know, I did see them, the Axel Roses version of Guns N' Roses. I saw them in Vegas, but uh, it wasn't the same. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It's still good, but yeah. What was it for you that got you in Iron Maiden? Um, so Iron Maiden, I knew who Iron Maiden was, obviously, before I even heard the music, just from, you know, Eddie. But one of my friends gave me Live After Death on cassette. Um, it wasn't, you know, I think the current album at the time was, it was during, I think Seventh Son was the latest album at the time. But the live that's when I got Live After Death, and I was in junior high, and it kind of blew me away. I kind of always thought that, Iron Maiden was going to be this like really, really heavy music. And when I heard it, I was like, this is not what I thought. This is like amazing. It just, I don't know. There's something about it. It just hooked me. No pun intended. (laughs) Well, you know, I tell that story all the time about how I got introduced to Iron Maiden. It was that poster on that wall in that kid's bedroom when I was over there on a Friday or Saturday night with my parents. And the image of Number of the Beast, the iconic album cover, had such an impression on me. And it was before I had heard any of their music. And then a few months later, I was at a sleepover with a friend down the street, and his older brother and his friend, we were kind of sleeping in their camper because they just opened up their camper because they were going to do some camping and then wanted to air it out or whatever. And so we were sleeping in there, and they come in at like 2 o'clock in the morning with flashlights and a boombox, and they they start playing Number of the Beast, and that was the first time I had heard Maiden. It was different than anything I had heard because it was very, very energetic. I mean, one of the things about Maiden that I've always felt is they're able to capture their energy on an album. And not to say that they're way better live than what's on the album because they're incredible live, but you always hear that, you know, like with Kiss, with the first six albums for Kiss, or the first three especially, they weren't able to capture the energy that they brought to a live audience. And you hear that a lot about a band. So Iron Maiden, for me at least, has always been energetic to listen to. It's always been energy. It's always been like power, like right in your face, even the album. And then when I go see them live, it's even better. But I never feel robbed by, by listening to a studio album by Maiden. Yeah, I think that's pretty much, I would agree with that 100%. Like, there's something about it. It's the energy, it's intense. It has this intensity, but it's it can be heavy, but it, it never loses that, like, melodic, you know, the the hooks are there, the melody, and I mean, the musicianship is, I don't know, something about it. You know, and you're talking about seeing that Number of the Beast poster. Like, how many people heard of Maiden from seeing, like, some guy in their school t-shirt? Or you hear these stories of people that see, like, they saw an Iron Maiden album, never heard of Iron Maiden, saw the album cover in the store and just, like, had to have it, right? Like, part of what made Maiden so huge, I think, is it's, like, Eddie. Like, it kind of connects all the albums together. And, like, I don't know. It, Iron Maiden's kind of bigger than just the music. You know what I mean? Like, there's people that don't know anything about heavy metal. They know Iron Maiden and they know Eddie. And I think there's been more of an appreciation for them as 
years have gone by and have, you know, different generations have listened to them. When you think about them in the 80s and you think about the catalog, everything from their debut in 1980 to Seventh Son of the Seventh Son in 1989, you think of the debut, you think of Killers, you think of Number of the Beast, you think of Peace of Mind, you think of Power Slave, you think of Somewhere in Time, you think of Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, and then you've got this kick-ass live album, Live After Death, smack dab in the middle of it. And when you reflect on all of that, and you compare it to the bands that were out that were probably more commercially popular at the time, whether it's Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Motley Crue, and so on. Now, when you revisit that decade and you, and you compare bands, I don't think that there is a band during that decade that had a better output of material than Iron Maiden. Well, I, yeah, I agree with that 100% too. I mean, you look at those first seven albums, I mean, can you find a fault in there? Like maybe Gangland, maybe Quest for Fire. Some people don't like the chorus of Invaders, but I mean, other than that, I mean, it's pretty solid. Like there isn't a really a weak song on there. It's, it's, yeah, it's just a streak of seven albums, solid catalog of classic albums and classic songs. And I think that's part of what Maiden, what made Maiden so big. I mean, they just took, that, well, they had the quality of the songs, and then they just like toured and toured and toured. I mean, they did five albums in five years. Okay, this is something we worked out on the podcast recently. This is how I know these numbers. If you look at the first five years, first five tours, um, the 729 shows in five years. And if you look at the first album tour, and you start with the first date of that, and if you end on the last date of the World Slavery Tour, it works out to a maiden show, a live maiden show, every two and a half days for five years straight. So there's like no substitute for, you know, that as far as building a fan base. It's crazy. And you can kind of make that connection to their 666 documentary that they did a few years ago, more than a few years ago now. It's probably closer to a decade yeah. ago. Where you see these crowds internationally. And you see how dedicated and loyal they are. I mean, when you look at the crowd in Colombia crying or Costa Rica crying after these shows, like they just, yeah. you know, like they're overcome with emotion because, A, they, they have never seen them before or just the performance and how, how loyal and how much they love Maiden. It all comes from those seven albums. It all comes from that. And yeah. they're big here in America, and they're, and, they're, and I'm sure they're just as big in Canada. But when you think of their connection to fans all around the world, internationally, they're gigantic. Yeah, well, when you think about that Flight 666 documentary that you're talking about, that's the Somewhere Back in Time tour. And they hit, like, India, Mexico, Dubai, Costa Rica. Like, I don't know how many bands actually hit these places. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, if you look at the World Slavery Tour, they did 96 dates in the United States. So they're not just hitting like main venues. They're hitting all your like smaller kind of secondary markets, I guess you call them. And I know being on the East Coast of Canada, we don't get many shows 
big bands come through here. Um, most of the time you'll get like Vancouver, maybe Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. So Montreal is usually the closest, as far east as they go. That's still a three-hour flight. Like we're three hours east of Montreal on a plane. So like I remember Pearl Jam came here in 2005. And the fact that they came to our town, uh, it kind of it was kind of a big deal. Like people couldn't believe it. And it kind of, I don't know, it was kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, but it meant a lot to people. And I think like Maiden coming to some of these places, like these countries where other bands don't normally play, these smaller towns, I mean, you get these really loyal fans and, you know, they built their whole career on touring. I mean, their first album tours 1980 in the last 40 years. So they've been touring for 40 years, 36 out of the last 40 years, there was a maiden tour on the go. They just like never took their foot off the gas pedal and they just brought the music to fans. We talked about, you know, the couple of the duds that we think, you know, or maybe you mentioned, you know, like Gangland or maybe the chorus of Invaders or whatever, but it's still on, both those songs are on Number of the Beast, and that's still a great album, and, and, and so is Peace of Mind, and so is all these other great records that they released during that period. One song here and there that, I mean, I, I know the band, I know Steve Harris has mentioned that he's not a big fan of Gangland either, but... Yeah, like we talked about, you know, that that's one song. How many bands would in that from that era would kill to have seven albums like that and maybe one, two or three songs that maybe aren't up to par with the rest? I mean, yeah, I know. It's yeah. Unheard of. <laughs> it's it's I mean, but when you think of when you think of a band like Motley Crue for instance, one of the biggest bands of the 80s. You know, they've got a solid debut album with Too Fast for Love. Shout at the Devil is one of the influential heavy metal records in the early 80s, before they went glam, before Theater of Pain. When you look at the albums they released after, which were Theater of Pain, Girls, 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 and Dr. Feelgood. I think Dr. Feelgood was 89. Theater of Pain, I mean, outside of a few songs is a dud. When you look at Girls, 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 outside of those popular songs, it's kind of flat. You know, so, yeah, they had these singles that were great, that were popular, that people connected with, that people loved. Maiden had the songs that people connected with, the popular songs that, you know, became videos, whether it was Wasted Years or Can I Play With Madness or Ace Is High, but when you get those albums and you dive into them, there's no filler. There's no songs they just put on because they needed to suck up some time. I mean, all those songs are thought-provoking. They're, they have historical references. They take you on a journey. They're very similar in their type of scope of song, like the journey, as Led Zeppelin is. I mean, Led Zeppelin's got the you know, the soul of a woman is created below and the whole lot of love and, you know, all that's kind of bluesy stuff. But as they went on too, I mean, if they, if they, as they moved forward in their career, like physical graffiti and houses, of the holy, and they had songs like cashmere and Achilles last stand, you know, those songs took you on a journey, but maiden has, you know, three, four songs like that in every record that once you put it on and you start listening, I mean, you're, you, you, 
the song kind of becomes part of you and it takes you somewhere else. Yeah, there is something to that. Like, you know, it's like if you're a teenager or a kid and you, you know, you're listening to songs about like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or the Charge of the Late Brigade or Passchendaele or the Battle of Britain, uh, there's something about that. They seem important. They kind of like seem like they transcend some of the music about like partying and girls. You know what I mean? Not that I'm against that because I'm a huge hair metal fan too. Like, you know, I'm not like a snob. I was listening to uh, Look What the Cat Dragged In on vinyl the other night. So <laughs> I don't have anything against that kind of music, but there's something about maiden music that kind of, uh, I don't know, like a kid, maybe their parents think that like dumb and they can go to their mom and be like, listen to the song about Alexander the Great. You know what I mean? Actually, I have a story with that. My daughter, when she was seven, I had her in the car and I don't like force my music on them. I kind of let them kind of, I kind of support whatever they want, but I kind of, you know, I think it's important that they kind of find their own music, but I do expose them to a lot of my music, hoping it'll catch on. And I played Empire of the Clouds, which is, if people don't know, so that's the last song from their last album, The Book of Souls. And it's this 20 minute epic about this like Zeppelin that crashed on its maiden voyage. Um, and so I just had it on in the car and my daughter heard the words and, you know, we got home and she wanted to know all about this R101. She wanted to know why it crashed, how it crashed. She wanted to go online, see pictures of it. And I mean, you know, that's just, I don't think that happens with a lot of bands. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, I've had, you know, similar experiences with my son. You know, as he's listened to Maiden, I've actually taken him to see Maiden in concert. Um, he's 15 years old now. I think I took him. On, I took him on the on the Book of Souls tour when they came to Chicago. I don't know if that was three, four years ago. I think four, maybe. Um, yeah, that would been. Yeah, yeah, and and he's had similar experiences too. You know, like the Trooper or Run to the Hills. You know, all those historical references or about what you know what it's about. Alexander the Great, Passchendaele. Um, it's, I mean, even the song, you know, the Klansman, which is, you know, not thought of, you know, the albums, you know, when Blaze replaced Bruce, those albums really are not as thought of as being great albums. Of course, they're not the caliber of, you know, Bruce Dickinson singing or, you know, the Paul Diano first two records, but I, I've grown to enjoy those and I really love the Klansman. It's one of my favorite songs and yeah, it has inspired him to learn more about the subject matters. I remember when Maiden was controversial because of those album covers, because of the number of the beast. And I remember people or mostly parents didn't want their kids listening to Iron Maiden. I know my mother was one of those parents when she saw the album covers and, you know, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, so it did cause a bit of tension growing up of me having those albums but when you really dive into them, they're not about what is portrayed on the album. I mean, it's about it's much deeper than that. And I think that's one of the really cool things about Maiden. Yeah, that is cool. And and that whole, like, controversy about, like, devil worship in the 80s, it kind of, like, worked for them. Because, I mean, you know, a parent tells their kid, like, this album is forbidden, you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it goes from one of the bands in your album collection to like this band that, you know, you have to like secretly listen to. And you, I don't know, kind of, I think people like 
gravitate or they want to like protect that music and it, it means more to them. And I think it kind of worked in their favor as far as like, well, I, I have a, like, I remember there's a quote from Bruce Dickinson where he said, uh, someone asked him about the record burnings because people were burning copies of number of the beast. And he was like, uh, well, if you want to burn our records first, you have to buy our records. So he had no problem with it. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of controversy with a lot of bands back in the day, you know, whether it was Judas Priest or whether it was Ozzy Motley Crue with the shout the devil cover. I mean, I've mentioned this before on other podcasts. I'm still in awe that Ozzy Osbourne is now considered this pop culture icon when when I was growing up, he was considered the second coming of Satan. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable how parents feared him and, and how all the controversy, you know, and then he has this reality show and he's invited to the White House Correspondents Dinner. And I'm just like, how, how did this happen? You know, like, you know, and I think over time, things become softer or maybe people become more accepting or people realize how ridiculous it is to correlate violence or correlate suicide or whatever it is to music or how things, you know, force kids to do things. I mean, but we just, you know, acknowledge the anniversary of Columbine, which was at the time one of the worst school shootings in our country. And Marilyn Manson was blamed for a lot of that. Because the kids who did that horrible act um, listened to Marilyn Manson. So people tried to connect him to that and blame him for, you know, the acts of others. And and all through history, especially for hard rock and heavy metal music, you've seen that. I mean, even when Kiss in the 70s, when the makeup, I mean, they were called killers in service of Satan. That's what people thought Kiss meant. So I think that's been around, but I think it, it just proves how ridiculous things can get in terms of controversy, sometimes people look for controversy instead of, you know, worry about other things. Yeah. I remember when that, when that, uh, the Osborne show came out, I always thought that was like, I just thought that was the worst thing that could possibly happen. If you're like a Sabbath fan, because you have this guy who's like the Prince of darkness, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he's kind of, he's a bumbling like goof. And actually me and my co-host, Josh, we always butt heads over, he was never a Sabbath fan. He only knows Ozzy first through this show. So for me to try to convince him that Sabbath is awesome, it's been like, yeah, not easy. <laughs> That's too bad. I mean, you know, but music connects with people at different times. I know how I've shunned oh, yeah. bands for years, and then all of a sudden I'll hear a song at a party or, I, I don't know, it'll just filter in my brain or something like that, and I'll start listening to them. And I'll appreciate them more, and I'll enjoy them a lot more. So, you know, there may there may be hope for him yet. He may discover Sabbath a year from now, two years from now, whenever, and he'll kick himself for, you know, being like, "Damn, I, why didn't I? Li- why did I wait so long to listen to this stuff? This stuff is great." Yeah, I get it though, because like, there's some bands that just don't connect with you, and some that do, and some that just out of the blue, all of a sudden they connect with you. Something. I mentioned on one episode of the podcast that I, I'm not a big Queen fan. And I got a flood of emails from people saying, like, you have to listen to Queen 2. You have to, like, people sending me playlists. Listen to these five songs. And I actually listened to all their recommendations. And, uh, you know, it, Queen just doesn't do it for me. I don't know what it is. The thing <laughs> I about, tried. The thing about Queen is they have 
very popular songs, obviously. Bohemian Rhapsody, We Are the Champions, We Will Rock You, all that stuff. And everybody knows the standards. Everybody knows the Queen hits. But for me, I love the deep stuff. I love the stuff that most people don't know because I think that's their best stuff. You know, I mean, I, I, I really, really enjoy a lot of their material. And when I was younger, I didn't really discover them until probably about, you know, maybe late 20s is when I started really kind of diving into their catalog and I was exposed to all this great stuff that I had never heard before because, let's face it, classic rock radio only plays the same 50 songs and I think the Queen catalog has been subject to, you know, cutting it down to four or five songs that they only only play and nothing else matters, which is sad to begin with. But I think a lot of people are missing out on Queen. And, and you know, and then again, it's your palate. Sometimes things just don't connect with you. And yeah. that's fine, and too. I get, yeah. And I get it. Like, I hear it. And the, the production on those albums are great. Freddie Mercury, one of the best front men of all time. And, I mean, I've listened to Queen, too, enough you know, I've listened to, you know, Seven Seas of Rye, what is it, Ogre Battle, Father to Son, all these songs that people recommend to me. But it just, there's something about it doesn't click. And so I get it when I hear, even when I hear people, like, I'm always trying to convince people, like, the X Factor is actually a really good Maiden album. And people, a lot of people don't give it a chance. And I'm like, it's fine if you don't like it, as long as you, you know, you listen to it a few times, at least give it a chance. But I get it if the Blaze stuff doesn't click. And I've, I've met people that, like, the Paul stuff they don't like. And you know, I get it. It's people's taste. It's so subjective. It's hard to, uh, it's hard for me to <laughs> wrap my head around. But I get it. I always laugh when people go, "Oh, if, if it's if you're talking about the Klansmen when Bruce does it live, yeah, it's great." And I'm like, <laughs> "It's actually really, really good. The studio version's phenomenal. Um, I like the studio version. I, I like some of the stuff that Blaze did on those two albums." You know, and that goes back to people just wanting to have what's familiar with them. It took me a while to get into the Diano stuff, you know, because I was exposed to Number of the Beast and then Peace of Mind. Of course, you had the videos for Run of the Hills and Number of the Beast and then the Trooper, Flight of Icarus. And it, I didn't realize that they had a different singer on Killers in the debut till probably around the Power Slave time. And, and when I heard the Diano stuff, it was so different that it didn't connect with me right away. It, it, right, and it's not just Paul Diano's vocals. Like, those two albums, they have a completely different sound. Like, there's this huge progression between Killers and Number of the Beast in, like, song structures. I mean, there's a hint of that in some of the early stuff with, like, Phantom of the Opera and stuff. But, like, it's it, it, there's a big different change in the sound between Killers and Number of the Beast. So it's not just the singer. It, it is, you know, a different phase of Maiden. And just, like, the, the Blaze stuff, like if you go from the Bruce era, when you hit the X factor, you have these really long songs. It's really dark. It's not just the vocals. It's, it's a different maiden. I agree. And I think the frustrating part with me with maiden fans is they, they don't appreciate the band evolving and moving forward. I mean, we talk about the seven records in the eighties. Those are classic. No one's saying that, you know, they're not, but the newer stuff, especially after Bruce came back with Brave New World and, you know, with that album and then you had, you know, the Dance of Death album and Matter of Life and Death and El Dorado and Book of Souls, you know, 
the the newer stuff and we were talking about this before we started to me has always connected with me i book of souls and, and brave new world i would put up against any of the seven classic albums you know i think no I think, me too i think the other albums are great like matter life and death el dorado um dance of death but i think the two that are book of souls their last one i mean you know the red and the black you know um and what was the one that uh, I can't think of right now? Um, the title track, Book of Souls. The title track is phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I can't think. Of, it's, there's also the same title as also an Iron Maiden or Motorhead song, rather. I can't. I'm drawing a blank right now. Death or Glory? Yes, Death or Glory, which I love. And, and people, I think, appreciate it, but there's something about the classic rock fan, which now Maiden is considered classic rock, that doesn't like anything new they don't like their artists to put out anything different than what they know and it's hard for them to connect with it. it's hard for them to be open to the book of souls or it's hard hard to you know for them to listen to stuff that maybe they're not familiar with because i think they become so sad and i think you know because there is no more rock radio and it's become so formulated and it's become basically 50 to 100 songs in rotation, and that's it. I think people have gotten so used to that that a challenge, to challenge someone and listen to something new, a lot of people won't take that challenge and, and, and embark on that on that journey to listen to newer stuff, whether it's Maiden or whether it's anybody else. Yeah, that's true. And, like, you're talking about the later, like, Brave New World, which is, like, the post-reunion era, which I think is just some of their best work. Um, I know I'm kind of biased. I mean, I'm a huge Maiden fan, but like people talk about the Blaze era as kind of this like, you know, dark time for Maiden or whatever. But I think it's, we talked, it's funny, like it shows because we were talking about the first five albums and then Seventh Son and Somewhere in Time and Seventh Son as like the first string of like classic Maiden albums. And I think the first like kind of, not cracked, but the first, you know, no prayer for the dying in 1990. I think when Adrian leaves, that's the first sign of a little bit of weakness. Like there's that album, I think is not as strong and fear of the dark. Then I think is I'm not, that's probably my least favorite maiden album, less than virtual 11 even. Um, so I like people always talk about the Paul era, the Bruce era, the blaze era, and then the reunion era where Bruce and Adrian came back. But one of the things, you know, after two and a half years of doing the podcast, uh, I've kind of come to think of it more as you have your Paul era and your Bruce era, and then you have your non-Adrian era of those four albums. And that's kind of like a bit of a slump as far as like, they lost a lot of fans after um, Seventh Son, like No Prayer, Fear of the Dark, X Factor Virtual 11. Like we did episodes on Virtual 11 and you look at the venues they're playing, like they're playing 10,000 seaters, 3,000, 2,000 seat venues. Like, like, okay, for Virtual 11 on that tour, when they played New York, they played the Roseland Ballroom, which is like 3,000 people or something like that. On the Power Slave tour, when they hit New York, they played, they sold out five nights in a row of Radio City Music Hall. And I mean, we've got emails and calls from people who saw Maiden, on the virtual 11 tour in like two third full venues. So they're clearly in a slump, 
And then, you know, Bruce is going along. He has his albums out. He's playing to like crowds of hundreds. And then you have Maiden and Slump and they both kind of came to, they're both making good music. Nowhere near the level they were at in the eighties. And then this reunion happened. And I think that's a big part of what made Maiden like, you talk about Maiden being one of the biggest bands, like metal bands in like history of metal, like other than maybe Sabbath. Um, this reunion, I think, kind of made them bigger than ever. Like everybody loves a comeback story. And so Bruce is coming back. I know you saw that Ed Hunter tour when Bruce first came back. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this like buzz and this excitement about Maiden again all of a sudden. And I think they kind of came back. They're bigger than ever, like literally with three guitarists bigger than ever. And I think they kind of, that kind of slingshotted them back up past where they were in the eighties as far as like popularity. You know, that's interesting because like the reunion I think is huge in like how big Maiden are today. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I have a question for you. So I saw yeah. them at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. And as I remember it, and tell me if I'm wrong, because obviously over the years, your memory can be slanted and, and you forget certain things. So as I remember it, my friend bought tickets for that show with when Blaze was still the singer because they were playing these, like you said, smaller venues. I mean, I think Aragon is probably... 3,000 to 3,500 people. Yep. So he bought the tickets, and I, I, if I remember correctly, Blaze was still the singer when those tickets went on sale. And because the tickets and the album sales were down, they decided to make a change, and they brought Bruce back after those, after that, after those shows that had already gone on sale. And I was lucky enough to see Maiden with Dickinson at a venue like that. Is that correct in how I'm explaining that or was it always with Bruce um from I've never heard that but it could be possible okay I don't know for a fact like when those how far ahead the tickets I'm not 100% sure of the timeline on that but that that's that's pretty cool that you get to see Bruce and that's that list I think Bruce did with their future real yeah uh, man on the edge Klansman like there's a bunch of blaze songs in there that Bruce did on that and I've heard bootlegs of that tour Bruce sounds amazing so I was, I was at the front of Aragon Ballroom, and they used to call Aragon Ballroom. I've been at a lot of shows there <laughs> over the years. And I remember when Maiden came on, I had to extend my arms up against, like, I think it was, there was like a, there's like a fence there. I had to, like, extend my arms so I wouldn't get crushed because everybody, like, went to the front of the stage when Maiden came on. And to see them in that small environment and, and, and to see them in that – I should say more int- intimate environment is still one of my favorite shows of all time. And when, oh, yeah. when I got done or when the, when the show was over, I walked out, I was just like dripping with sweat cause it was so hot in there. <laughs> it's one of those old theaters with poor ventilation, but, and then I saw them on the fear of the dark tour, which I think it was with Testament at, um, Alpine Valley, I want to say. And yeah, it was Alpine Valley. And that was the first time I had seen them. So I had not seen them before. Um, and I've always liked Fear of the Dark. I never really cared for No Prayer for the Dying. In fact, I always, I, I put No Prayer for the Dying in the same category as those Blaze records, where there's moments that are good, but the majority it's kind of eh, you know? Um, I, yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah, and I will say I have learned to appreciate the Blaze records a lot more 
as I've gotten older, especially with, you know, enjoying the Klansmen and some of the other songs that are on there. I, I think it's, yeah, I don't think it's, it's horrible. I mean, obviously you have to remember the context of that time too. The, the music that was popular in the eighties was basically non-existent. It was uncool to like it. So Maiden, yes, was struggling. You know, Adrian Smith had left the band, but every band from that era was struggling. Every band was, you know, they were, I mean, Motley Crue put out an album with John Karabi that sounds totally different. You know, Def Leppard, uh, I forget the name of the album that they put out that was more grungy. Everybody was trying to jump on the grunge train, and none of those bands were successful in doing it. So I think when Bruce came back on that reunion, I think people were thirsty for that type of music. I think people were, because that was 98, right? Uh, 98 virtual 99 was the, okay. yeah, the yeah. toy that you saw. Yeah. Because uh, the funny story after that is I had a job interview, um, like two days after that maiden show at Aragon ballroom and I couldn't hear a damn thing <laughs> and I got the job. I don't know how I got the job. I, 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 I literally could barely hear what this woman was asking me and I don't know how I got through it. Similar experience years later, I take my son to see them on the Book of Souls tour, I'm walking out of the show. I feel like I'm standing next to an airplane. I'm like, I can't hear anything right now. You yeah, know, so tinnitus is coming. <laughs> yes, I mean, as you know, I'm 45 years old, and it um, it's not getting any better. But yeah, know. that's one thing that I've started doing is, is uh, wearing ear protection. I took my daughter when she was eight to uh, the Legacy of the Beast tour in uh, one of the Toronto shows that I went to. I took her and I had her the full ear protection and uh, I was like very paranoid. Of, I, I have been through that experience that you're talking about like many, many times where you come out and you're sitting in the back of a cab and you're like screaming at each other because you can't hear. <laughs> so I was very conscious of like her hearing and I'm very conscious of mine now too. I'm starting to get a little bit of the like the ringing in the ears every now and then and it's kind of scary. I do get that. You know, every once in a while the feedback will hit me. You know, when I'm just yeah. like watching television or laying in bed, um, I've seen a lot of shows over the years. So it, it has, I mean, I, I mean, if I cover one ear and then cover the other ear, I can tell there's a difference in, in both ears. And I have a lot of, I have difficulty now in crowds. Like if my son's talking to me in a crowd, I need to stop and like, all right, say that again. What, what did you say? Because if there's too much background noise, I have difficulty with hearing my, you know, people in conversation. I know in my twenties, like every weekend I was downtown seeing a band and you're, when you think about it, you're standing like five or six feet from like the speakers and you're just like, didn't think anything of it. <laughs> it's so stupid now to think back of. <laughs> when you think of Maiden, when you think of Maiden in the eighties and you think of those seven classic albums and how it basically built their legacy to what it is today. If Maiden was more commercial, com- uh, what's the word? Maybe commercial uh, aware of their music. Do you think they would have had those crossover fans that maybe liked the Def Leppards or Mike like the Motley Crues, or do you think that it was such a loyal audience and you and you think about the Iron Maiden fan versus the other Maiden fans are music fans right 
I mean, they, they are music right. fans. Where I think Def Leppard fans or Bon Jovi fans, a large contingent of them are music consumers. So Right. Well, that's, yeah, something that, that's something you're talking about. Like, people always talk about how Iron Maiden, they made it with no radio play, right? And you always hear people talk about how MTV never really pushed them. They never got on the radio. And I think that actually worked out in the long run. I think that worked out great. It's like this organic word of mouth growth. Um, it's not like some of the hair metal bands where like MTV pushed it, people got sick of it. And then they're on to the next thing. It's not like, you know, it's almost good. They never got radio play. They did it like on their own terms and you get like an organic loyal fan base. It's not people that like grab maiden because they're currently the hot thing. They're just going to move on to the next hot thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think Maiden was ever the hot thing when you think about it. Yeah, and I think in the long run that worked out for them. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it just adds, you know, when when someone's telling you or when you're a fan of a band that not everybody likes or not everybody's aware of, it makes you like them more. It makes you more loyal to the cause of that band because it makes you feel like this is your deal. It's your thing. You know, you want to keep... And that tapped into the whole, like, the devil worship and like kind of having them be like a, a forbidden thing when you're a kid, like people that like maiden, they kind of feel like it's their, their thing. It's, it's kind of like, it's something that I haven't really experienced that much with other bands, which is like, it's almost like a community like of maiden fans. Like I've met so many maiden fans, like at before maiden concerts at these like fan club meetups. Um, like, You've been to Maiden shows. Like, what percentage of the audience has a Maiden shirt on? Ninety. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you hear these people saying, I always read on the internet, and you see people say they're like, "Don't wear the shirt of the band that you're going to see." That's lame. And I'm like, you've clearly never been to an Iron Maiden show. Like, right. you wear an Iron Maiden shirt to a Maiden show. And I said, me and Josh were in. We went to Manchester and the two back-to-back London shows of the Legacy of the Beast show. And uh, the whole time we hung out at the Carton Horses in London and we just like, we're hanging out at these fan club meetups and we were just constantly with these fans and everyone had a maiden shirt on. Everyone was friendly. Um, And I turned to Josh and I was like, watching Iron or being an Iron Maiden fan and going to an Iron Maiden show is like, it's like going to a home game of your favorite sports team and your sports team always wins. That's a great analogy. I never thought of it that way. And you're right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when you look at the merch but table is this thing with community, I don't know what it is about Maiden. I don't know if you get that. I've never really experienced that at any of the other shows I've gone to. I've always compared the Iron Maiden community to the Rush community, which is I could totally see that. Yeah. Which is very loyal, um, and they're very, you know, same thing. You know, Rush, not mainstream. I mean, I think they had a little bit of mainstream success in the late seventies and early eighties, but. We're always considered the quote-unquote nerd band. People still use that phrase, yep. which I don't particularly like because I think it's just good music. Um, but I do compare their fan base to Maidens and how loyal they are and how you know they, they, they're into the shows, they're into every riff, every lyric, every song, and there's not too many bands that I think even come close to that. Um Maybe Metallica, like in in the '90s or whatever, but you know, Metallica had that crossover success where you know they had a lot of novice fans, and once 
you know, they went away. So did those novice fans. You know, Rush and Maiden never had the casual fan, right? They never had right. they never had the guy or the gal, oh, I'm going to go check out Rush. I'm going to go check out Maiden. They don't have those fans. And everyone that goes, like you said, you know, you look at the merch table at a Maiden show. There's like 30 T-shirts for sale, you know, yeah. and, and they sell their own beer, you know, before the show. Yeah, well, they're they're bigger than the music. That's the thing. Like, they have that Legacy of the Beast tour, which is based around a video game. Right. It's a free video game. It's like, and this goes back to your thing, if Maiden kind of maybe commercialized their music a bit, but they kind of have been the whole time. Like, this Legacy of the Beast video game is free, but every kid that plays it, like, they're going to go on to buy a shirt or an album or a concert ticket. Maybe people aren't in Iron Maiden, but they see the tap for the Trooper beer at the, at the pub. You know what I mean? And it just drives that. I really hate when people talk about bands and call them like a brand, but like, it's a kind of appropriate in, you know, with Iron Maiden. It's a brand that people like, you hear people that are like, I only drive a Ford. I'm a Ford man. And like, people kind of grab onto Maiden in the same way. They kind of identify with it. It's, I don't know how to describe it. It's strange. <laughs> well, I think it goes back to that kid with the back patch on the jean jacket or the pins or the patches on the jean jacket. It's sitting in the room, looking at these album covers and taking that journey with the band. I think when you, when you think back of music back in that time, there wasn't a band that was like that. Zeppelin, of course, was gone. Black Sabbath, you know, after Deal left, we had singer after singer, and they really lost their popularity. Glam hit, you know, you had bands like Van Halen who were party bands. Um, you know, you had the whole L.A. scene movement. And I remember those Iron Maiden fans, because I was one of them, that really stuck stuck with them. And... It wasn't until later on in the 80s when you did have, you know, the songs Wasted Years, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, Heaven Can Wait, and then, you know, Can I Play With Madness and Moonchild and stuff like that, where it started to grow. It started, people started to say, oh, well, who's this again? And then they started to revisit their back catalog. But I go back to that time where, I mean, that when Iron Maiden connected with you, I mean, they, they put a grip on you. You weren't going anywhere. Yeah, it's a deep connection. It is. It's, it's, there's something about the music that you just, you know, there's something about it. I don't know what it is or how to describe it. It's funny, too, because, like, you're talking about bringing in new fans. I don't know how many people notice, but, like, so Maiden's kind of in this, people say they're in a slump, and then they have this, like, they come back with Brave New World, which, I mean, I might be kind of biased towards it, but I think it's, like you said, as good as, any of their 80s stuff. Like we just did a seven hour, seven part series on our podcast on the brave new world album. Um, I think that's like a, a modern classic. And then they go straight from that. They carry their momentum into like rock and Rio. And they, so up, up to, so this is the post reunion. I call it, this is after Braden, uh, Bruce and Adrian came back. They had one compilation, best of the beast before, Bruce came back after Bruce came back and after Brave New World they had Edward the Great Essential Iron Maiden Somewhere Back in Time uh, From Fear to Eternity and with live albums they had like a few live albums they had Live After Death a real live dead one 
there's another one I can't remember. But then post reunion, they hit it with Rock and Rio, Death on the Road, Flight Six Six Six, In Vivo. They reissue Made in England. They re-release Beast Over Hammersmith, and then they have like the live chapter. So it's like Maiden has they've they've been they keep rel- relevant. They're constantly releasing new material, material. So they're like this relevant, like current band, and they drive that home with touring. But then they really tap into that back catalog of albums that we're talking about. So these like first seven albums, they're just re-releasing those for new fans. Like you, they throw these compilations out these live albums and you're really like, so the new fans that are coming along, they're still pulling them in with these old classic, the streak of albums like packaged in different ways. And, you know, fans that they lost, maybe you stopped listening after seven Sun, and you know, there's a compilation and you listen to that and then five of the songs you never heard before. And then that kind of gets you back into Maiden. But I mean, they've, I think the, I don't know what happened at the reunion, but they've really, just the touring has never stopped and they've they've used this base of seven albums from the 80s and they're still using it now to pull in new fans think of the book of souls album i mean it's released in what looks like a book when you think of yeah. the remasters that they've done over the last couple of years you've got figures that come with the repackaging you know you think of yeah. all that stuff and of course, that brings it sells more copies. It brings in the younger fan. You know, they want the, you know the younger fan sees these statues and or these figures, and they want that. But that's been made for as far as I can remember too. I mean, I'm trying to remember the time frame when they re released all of the first seven albums, and they included all the B sides on another disc. Was that like mid to late '90s? I want to say they did that. Um. That was, I want to say that was in the late 80s. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I have those upstairs. Or was that? That was, I think it was the 90s. 98? 98? Yeah. I can't remember. I think it was like 98 because they had two discs. One was the album remastered and then they had all the Right, and then the bonus thing. Yeah, Yeah, the two CDs. Right. I know. And. But yeah, they've always had, you know, this, like, I have a room upstairs that, gradually became like the Iron Maiden room. There's this like Maiden everything. And I know what it's like. These new digipacks came out and I was like, am I going to buy any? And then I bought one or two and now I have to buy them all. So it's like, you know, I'm a sucker for anything. These like little figures and I don't know. (laughs) Well, hopefully new. They're a fun band to like and like the collection. And they are. They totally are. I don't know what it is about them. They're fun. Speaking of material, you know, we are hoping for a new album from them. There's been rumors circulating for almost a year about new material coming this year. I don't know if the current situation is going to delay that, but I wonder about that. Yeah, I, I from what I've heard and read, it sounds like it's done. The album's done. It's just a matter of when they want to release it. Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch. We had an we did an episode about this where we. Uh, like Kevin Shirley posted a bunch of stuff on social media from like Guillaume Tell Studios in Paris, where they that's where they recorded the book Souls. And then someone overheard someone at a Cart and Horses event talking about them recording. And Bruce and Yannick, and I think Nico and Steve were all spotted in Paris in March of last year. And then there's a whole bunch. There's like we went through like the dozen pieces of evidence. 
So it sounds like they recorded last March. Yeah, they probably recorded. They got to mix it and they got to you know do the packaging and everything. So yeah. hopefully, at some point this year, it does come out. I'm sure a lot of bands that were thinking of touring or about to announce tours, like you think of Maiden, you think of ACDC, you know, they didn't go ahead with it and they're waiting to see what happens. But, you know, we are at that point in Maiden's career where, you know, is every is the newest album going to be their last album? Is this going to be their last tour? Is the next Legacy tour going to be their last tour? I mean, they are pushing 70. So what is yeah. that oh, going yeah. to be like? Well, especially you know? Nico. Nico seems like he's uh, having some – I've read a few interviews where he's having some pretty bad issues as far as, like, you know, the grind of touring and arthritis. And it's, you know – well, it's funny because when I was saying about how me and Josh went to England to see Maiden on the Legacy of the Beast show, or tour, and we saw Manchester, and then we had tickets for London at the O2 Arena, which was the last uh, – date of the tour they added a second show and i was like do we want to buy like i could only get nosebleeds like they were literally the worst seats in this in the stadium and i was like do we really want to do the second like show and like you said we were like this could possibly be you know the last maiden show like and the guys are getting up there like something could happen right right so it's kind of depressing to think about but we were kind of panicked and we're like, yeah, we have to get shows. We have to get these tickets. Well, when you think about the coronavirus and who it affects mostly old people or people with uh, pre-existing conditions, you know, the maiden's yep. pushing seventies. A lot of these rock stars from our youth are pushing 70 late sixties. You know, they have to worry about being on stage and the crowd, someone in the crowd coughing or sneezing and having that get on stage or however, and, and that could really affect them. It could affect, you know, instantly the health of one of those guys. So, it's not just the crowd that's a concern. It's also the people that are on stage and their age. And I'm sure they all have ailments. I'm sure they all have conditions. I mean, you know, as you get older, yeah. things fall apart. You know, I mean, we've all yeah. experienced and people that. People always think about, like, when they think of touring, they think of the shows. But, I mean, that's a small part of it. It's the backstage. It's the, the flights. The It's the buses, the flights, the, you know, the hotels and the – it's non-stop interacting with people like they just you know there's no way the tour is going to go ahead it's like it's depressing you look at the iron maiden tour like the page on their website and you're just seeing every few days there's another one canceled canceled and they're all going to get canceled yeah it's just you know well nesbit it's been a blast i appreciate you doing this it's been a great conversation love talking maiden with you um, I could do this for hours, so I do appreciate. Oh yeah, it. I know. <laughs> I could keep you on here for another two hours, but yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I no, I, I thank you for for coming on the show and doing the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, yeah, if anyone wants to check us out, Talking Maiden, just search for Talking Maiden. On we're on all the platforms. We uh, we're into year three now, so we've pretty much covered every aspect of Iron Maiden you can think of. <laughs> yeah, when I post this episode, I will put the links in for you guys and people can visit. I know there's a lot of Maiden fans on my page. And uh, if they haven't, if they're not aware of you guys, they should be. It's a great podcast. It's great content. Give them a listen. You know, TalkingMaiden.com. They're on every platform for podcasts. They're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. So check them out. Great. Thanks. That was fun. 
Well, once again, that's Nesbitt, the co-host of Talking Maiden. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Stay safe, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.